0: All right, so this morning we can discuss Luke, we can discuss the Old Testament and all that was going on there, or we can move into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I'll open it up for questions from Luke. Going once. Yes! Oh, yes, Deb. <laughs> right right yeah uh, yeah yeah in Luke's account Luke um a couple of years go by in the between those verses we know we're dealing with 40 we know we're dealing with 40 days Um, We know we're dealing with 40 days from the birth when they go up to the temple. And then if you just read Luke, fair enough, it just sounds like they go back to Nazareth. But we know that they stay there till the child, because when the wise men come and Herod orders the death of kids, is it two or under, right? Which means the kid's probably about a year old, um, if if he's trying to be cautious. I mean, it's it's unlikely that Herod would would, uh, think the kid's three and only order to kill the two-year-olds. So that that all fits in there and and it, he just he's he's moving on to the next piece of his story um so yeah absolutely and like i said we can tell they haven't come yet because um no gold so yeah so luke basically it's kind of like when you read a history book you know one thing led to another and they ended up back in nazareth you know yeah well what do you mean one thing led to another <laughs> um, it's your job to tell me what those things are Adolf Hitler failed out of uh out of art school one thing led to another and the United States bombed the sovereign comp- company of Japan country the Japan you know um yes the kind of kind of kind of about that is five of us to say anywhere how many of those guys there were no i think we'll always three gifts there were three Dukes going for three gifts right right we have no idea no yeah yeah three rich three, though no, not three, just some wise guys, um three gifts, gold, frankincense, but wait, there's myrrh. Um, yes, Elsa <laughs> We don't know. I mean, perhaps this, this is, this is all part of, these are all part of supposals. We don't know. The text simply doesn't tell us. Is it possible that this is some holdover, some remaining influence of Daniel's time in Babylon? Possibly. I have no idea. Um, possibly. Who knows? Um, no, it's a fair enough question. What, it seems like every other instance of every other person coming to the child are people of faith. So the shepherds, you know, we get this statement about Simeon. So how would there be people of faith? People who are looking for or in any way attuned to the God of Israel in the East. Well. It's not, it's right. Right. No. No, 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 no. Fair, no, fair enough. I'm just saying it's a fair enough question, but who knows? I don't know. Um, it's, it's possible. I certainly wouldn't get dogmatic on it. Um, you want to be, you want to be careful when you're guessing and when you're going where the text goes. Well, it's like, like I said this morning, why, why is it 80 days for the purification for a girl and 40 for a boy? We don't know. Here's enough, here's a thought, maybe. But, we don't know. We just know what God said. God said forty for the boy, eighty for the girl. Okay. Yes, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I don't. I don't know because she's not. She's not prohibited from from, from people in the community. She's a, she's prohibited from temple worship. So this isn't a medical issue. This isn't like a husband not being able to lay with his wife for a period of time afterwards. This this has nothing to do with that. This is ceremonial uncleanness. She's not allowed to participate in the cultic life of the community um, at the temple because she's ceremonially unclean. She can't touch things that are that are that are sanctified and set apart for God. I don't think there's any medical connection there. Um, no, no. No, no, because some, some of the prohibitions do seem to have medical benefits. I, I don't think there's anything here because all she's prohibited from, the only, the, the only benefit she gets or the only consequence is you can't participate in temple worship because you're ceremonially unclean. I'm well, sure, I'm sure they could. Yeah. Right. No, 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 but, it, it, but when I saw that, I mean, seriously, if you have a Catholic friend, just show them those two verses. It helps because Luke quotes the Leviticus passage, so there's no question what Luke's referencing. And then Leviticus tells you this is a burnt offering and this is a sin offering. What is what is Mary bringing? She's bringing a burnt offering. She's bringing a sin offering for, to what purpose? To make atonement for her sins. That's what Leviticus says. So you can show that to somebody. And we don't have any reference of Jesus making a sin offering. No, I didn't no, no, indeed. And I, like I was saying, I also think that's why in both of these accounts. God is testifying to His the, His Son, lest there be any confusion. So that when Jesus gets baptized, there's a voice from heaven. No, I am well pleased. This is not somebody who's dirty and filthy and needs repentance. This is somebody in whom I am well pleased. Whatever is going on, it's not a cleansing of sin for this man because I'm well pleased with him. And in the temple, God raises up a, a prophet, you know, just just sort of led by the Spirit. We'll deal with that in two weeks. Um uh, But. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's part of the connecting thing, these two rights, which, lest there be any misunderstanding, you know, um, Zach, it's actually an English word invented for the purpose that comes from its root parts, at-one-ment, to take two parties and reconcile them and make them one. It actually has no etymology beyond that. It appears to be created for that purpose in English, a combination of the word at-one-ment, atonement, um, it's remo- the concept is to remove whatever is hindering oneness generally wrath or offense um, to atone would be to absorb remove take up remove carry away that which separates the two parties thus making them one that that's the concept um, Mary is not at with God. correct Mary is separated from God and and it's a sin offering, so it tells you what's getting in the way for fellowship, sin. She needs an offering to remove the sin so she can be at one with God, back fellowship with God. That's what atonement and sin offerings do. So yeah. Um it's it's crystal clear what she's doing and what's going on there. Um but any other any other yes, Sarah. No, because she had the baby. Yeah, go, to, go back to Leviticus real fast. It's Leviticus, what, 13? It's Exodus 13. It's Leviticus 12, right? Yes, Leviticus 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, let's we'll pick it up in verse 1, speak to the people of Israel. If a woman conceives and bears a male child... um. She shall be unclean seven days is at the time of her menstrual. So there's two levels of uncleanness. There's like the really unclean. No one can touch you, which, um, probably would exclude marital intimacy, things like that. Like you're unclean, like you're in your menstrual cycle. You are, you know, um, and again, nothing about that being like sinful. It's the picture blood and the shedding of blood for sin and the big Levitical concepts that tie up in sin and uncleanness, which is, um, What's going on here? So she's so she's faced with, I'm I'm sinful. There's a sign of my sinfulness, and I'm unclean in that sense. Then, after the eighth day, she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purification. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary. That's the prohibition. Prohibition is simply she can't touch anything holy. Things set apart for God, and she can't come into the sanctuary. At that time, there was no temple, so that would transfer to temple worship. Um, until the days of her purification are complete. But she bears a female child, it's two weeks, and then it's 66 days. And when the days of her purification are complete, verse 6, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. This is just every woman who has a kid. For every kid. Period. And then you get the, but if you can't afford a lamb, you go down to verse 8. Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering. And that's exactly what Mary brought, was that I can't afford a lamb offering. Um, one for burnt offering and one for sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, you'll see that there's even one further step down of poverty. Um, 5.11. If you cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then you shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. Now, ephah is about 22 liters, so a tenth of an ephah would be about 2.2 liters of flour. So if you couldn't afford turtle doves, apparently they don't list as interchangeable here, but assuming this applies across, here's the offering. If you can't afford the lamb, bring the turtle doves. If you can't afford the turtle doves, you bring flour. And so Mary isn't bringing in the totally bottom-of-the-barrel, lowest-level offering, but she's definitely bringing up the the poor level. She's definitely in the the lower class economically. Um, Yes? What's the difference between a burnt offering and a sin offering? No, the lamb has one as well. There's two things with the lamb. Go back Go back to Leviticus 12, um, verse 6. When her days of purification are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she'll bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So the only thing that gets swapped out is the lamb gets swapped out for a second pigeon or turtle dove. She's now... No, there's two offerings in both cases a burnt offering and a sin offering. I, it's hard to distinguish the different offerings. Sin offerings specifically point to atoning for sin, which is the language here, whereas burnt offerings can be anything from a thanksgiving offering to just an offering to God as a way of thanks. It would seem like one of the offerings, it'd be my guess, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Levitical um, sacrificial worship, probably something along the lines of thank you for this child, and here, deal with my sin. And they're separated out. Some sort of offering of worship or thanks. And it's very specific. It's stated twice to make atonement for her sin. This is, this is for my sin. And here's this other offering. Um, anyone wanna, anyone, has anyone studied the various offerings? Wanna weigh in some insight? Thanks. Appreciate that. Okay. Yes, James. Right. Now, there's different offerings with different animals. The, the offering we do do a lamb, though, is Passover. And that's Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So here's an instance where the sin offering isn't a lamb. The Thanksgiving offering is a lamb, or whatever, the burnt offering is a lamb. Sure. And there's various, there's various sacrifices for various things. And so this is the specific setup for this. But lambs elsewhere for other types of sacrifices are used. So it's not as simple as, oh, it's a lamb. It must be a burnt offering. No, it depends what you're doing and why. The lamb could be a sin offering if it was Yom Kippur. Here, it's a burnt offering. So it's not so it's not like the various animals are designated for various types of offering. There's the type of offering and then the thing fulfilling it as separate entities. Good observation. Good observation. Anything else? Yes, Linda. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, no, the, the law didn't even command they have to come to the temple. They could have dealt with this. They could have dealt with this in their hometown. They could have dealt with this in in. Um in Bethlehem, where they're staying, um, they used to need to pay the temple tax to Aaron. I mean, basically, it would have been as simple as somebody handing five shekels to a priest and saying, "Hey, this is for our kid." In regards to her sacrifice, she would need a priest, but there's synagogues in every town. They, they, you know, they perform sacrifices, so they could have, the, yeah. The sacrifices were very specifically on the altar in
1: the temple.
0: I think certain. Okay. Right. But they were doing their sacrifices wherever they saw fit. And God said no only in the temple. So I don't think there were sacrifices okay. going on in the synagogues. Those were purely for teaching and Okay. Now you're probably I think I think, you're I think, no, 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 I think I I know that I know that I got I got to, to check. I, maybe someone else has checked. I know that the, the prescribed sacrifices had to take place in the temple. I, I'm not sure whether or not free will sacrifices, Thanksgiving sacrifices could be performed elsewhere. I'll I'll check into that, get back to you, but you may well be right. Um, I guess that means that every woman has to travel to Jerusalem after the birth of every baby then. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. Um, well, Every able-bodied man has to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. You get 40. You get 40. You get 40. You get 40. 40, 40, 40, 40 Lee is like, nope, nope, I'm not going. I'm not going. And that Lee may be why you weren't given the uh, privilege of birthing the Messiah. <laughs> I'm not going. They think they are. Ah. Okay. Okay. Um, excellent. Excellent. Okay. Any other thoughts on this stuff? It, it, I, I know, like I, like I said, I know we only covered one point, but I was just found it so fascinating that the, the, re, the redeemer gets redeemed. That's literally the language in Exodus of what's taking place. They're buying him back. They're redeeming him. I just thought that was so cool. And looking at how all that symbolism gets fulfilled in Christ that I wanted to set up. Otherwise it would have been lame. We would have done either had to not do that or do that and then speed through, um, speed through, uh, Simeon and Anna and then want to do that so here we are but these are the Christmas stories that don't get much attention um, okay close to give them attention any other thoughts complaints before we move to the baptism of the Holy Spirit Alyssa what she's fine okay we gotta pause stall Take oh, a funny Christmas joke I don't I don't have any other funny Christmas jokes Ha ha! Ha ha! Ha ha! Anything? Okay. Well, Alyssa doesn't want me to move on, so any other questions or thoughts? Someone fill some time. Something. Okay. Oh, my yeah, my mom went to uh, the pool with my sister and did some exercises, and actually, was felt some. Significant relief. I think, I think a fair amount. She, her, her symptoms of MS have been progressing, but I think not as fast as she thinks. I think, um, with the, with trying to sell her house and everything, she's not been doing as much exercise. And I think she's realizing if I kept up my exercises, I might be feeling a bit better, which is encouraging. So that's good. Alyssa, can we move on yet? Okay. Alrighty then. Going once, going twice. Baptism mm-hmm. in the Holy Spirit time. Okay. So. I don't have any more handouts. Um, does anyone need one? If I could, if maybe someone could go photocopy the one or something. What? Yeah, can, does anyone have a handout that's not been, re- how many do you have, Alyssa? Two. You have two. That's selfish of you. Oh, Oh, they're, they're not identical. Oh, okay. Okay. It's okay if they're filled out. Okay, Serena, so, you, know, you want to go make, what, a dozen? How many hands? How many people need handouts? Okay. Prob- I probably have like 10 more at home too. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, to recap where we've gone, we first asked the question what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The answer I gave was um, it is the act by which Jesus baptizes, immerses, dips a believer. With, in, or by, because the Greek preposition can mean all, any, of, not all, can mean any of those. Um, well, it's dipped. Anyway, um, like when when the ship that Paul was on was shipwrecked, it was ba- Luke says it was baptized in the water. Um, okay, the act by which Jesus baptizes a believer with the Holy Spirit into His body, the Church. That's 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 the definition. Okay. Um, when, then we ask the next question, when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit occur? And I argued it concurs for us at conversion. It is simultaneous with the other benefits of conversion, the forgiveness of sins, the adoption as sons, um, that those are one and the same event. And then we've paused because we have brothers and sisters, and, and again, I picked the Assemblies of God not to pick on them, but because I think they're probably some of the most like-minded believers with us in many, many areas, except this area. And so, rather than picking some crazy people that'd be easy to pick apart, and who you know, you know, I could grab Benny or something, and you know, let's let's pick somebody we actually would recognize as Christians. <laughs> <laughs> not, I'm not taking that bait. I'm not taking that bait. I'm passing that one up. Okay. Um, And they they argue that the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, is subsequent to, here's their phrasing, from their 16 cardinal doctrines, so for the Assemblies of God, this is a cardinal teaching, this is central, this is a big deal. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, they argue, is separate from salvation and follows the new birth experience. With this baptism comes such experiences as overflowing fullness of the Spirit and a deepened reverence for God. So again, to be clear, they don't believe that we're not saved. They see it separate from salvation, so they would say we're saved. However, those who don't have the Holy Spirit, who haven't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, don't have a deeper reverence for God, don't have the fullness of the Spirit, um, don't have power to be productive in service. So you do end up, though, ultimately with a two class system so, those who are on the upper level and those who are just normal Christians. Yes? So, and why, so they're, they're saying that, like, Luther and Augustine, Calvin, and Jonathan Edwards, and <coughs> Charles Spurgeon, and all of these people who never experienced this were doing this without this, like, overflow and abundance of the Holy Spirit. What were they doing? Just gritting their teeth? I, well, what if they would have had <laughs> it? They would have been, like, crazy. <laughs> yeah, we can only imagine, Zeb. Zeb, we can only imagine just what would have happened. No. <laughs> I don't know, and there's very and there's variations of this. If you've if you've ever encountered the um, the the vineyard movement, they they I think they hold to this notion that like God caps this age with the outpourings of the Spirit, and so at the beginning and at the end, He saved His best wine for last. You ever heard that? No, okay. So some people will recognize this stuff's been gone for a long time, and now it's back, um, and we're getting and we're getting there. But anyway, I don't want to. Let's not. Bully these guys, let's treat them with respect, and look at this. But no, it does set up that two-class that two class system. The next point is this. What are the evidences of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And well, actually, before we get to the evidences, the next question was: okay, what do we do with the one or two instances in Acts where it looks like there is a delay? And you guys remember my answer for that? What we're seeing in Acts are two covenants simultaneously active, being active. Go go to Hebrews 8 real fast. I'll I'll show you the textual basis for this type of thinking. Um, And and Acts is a really fascinating book, but we've got to remember it is a transition period, a very unique and never-to-be-repeated transition period. Two covenants are functioning. One is terminating, and one is ascending. Okay? Look at verse 13. And he's just, in chapter 8, talked about the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So get that. At the writing of the book of Hebrews, even though the old covenant is terminating, it's still present. It's getting ready to vanish and disappear. That sure seems to be it. Yeah, I mean the text doesn't tell us at what point, but <laughs> yeah, because once the temple is destroyed, there is you can't function within it. So, so let me unpack what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there are two options for salvation for a way. Once once the message of the gospel comes, you either either believe or perish. But we ask the question: Okay, at what point? Was the old covenant offer of believe God, trust in God's word and his promises, which seems to be the old covenant. Will you, will you believe what God has said through the prophets? Will you believe and, and turn to him in faith and trust him and obey? Will you do that? Yes. Okay. You're justified. That's what happens to Abraham. God says, Hey, I'll be your God. Leave your land. Leave your people. Abraham says, Okay. Believe God has counted him as righteousness. Um, at what point is that offered no longer valid? I'm just thinking of some Jewish shepherd, you know, a hundred miles away from Jerusalem who hasn't heard of any of the hubbub, any of the commotion. He's living now a couple months after Jesus died, word hasn't gotten to him yet. At what point is it he didn't believe in Jesus so he's gonna perish? No, there's gotta be an overlap. And what we're seeing in Acts are people who are already justified and saved. In many cases, we're seeing in the book of Acts, people who are already justified. Not getting saved, but becoming participants in the new covenant. So in Acts 2 when the apostles are on the upper roof and the Holy Spirit descends upon them, we're not looking at their salvation. Rather, we're looking at their entrance into the new covenant. Cornelius was a devout man. His prayers had gone up as a memorial before God. I don't think that happens if you're an unbeliever. Because anything not done in faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. How did Cornelius's prayers go up as a pleasing memorial before God if he didn't have faith? I think Far better, Cornelius is what was called a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who was, who was a worshiper of the Jewish God, but hadn't gone far enough to actually receive circumcision. And that's, that's a pretty big commitment as an adult. And he hadn't done that. He's a God-fearer. And God sends Peter to him. So I don't think we're seeing Cornelius's salvation. I think we're seeing Cornelius's entrance into the New Covenant. Um, and that's what I think is going on with the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19. Again, they'd only received John's message, and John's message was repent and, and wait for the one who was to come. And the Bible repeatedly says that what John was preaching was gospel. It's not the gospel as we know it, because we're not looking for the one who was to come. We're, we're looking to the one who did come, right? But the text again and again says John preached the gospel. Um, and so my question is: People who responded to John the Baptist's message in faith were they not justified? Yes, under the old covenant they were. John is the last of the old covenant prophets, right? You with me? So, in in John one, when Jesus collects his disciples, they're already followers of John the Baptist. I would submit they're already justified if they've responded to John the Baptist's message in faith, and that's why there's no mention in John chapter one of people getting forgiven. It's people becoming disciples, people following him. This is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Um, so, so that's what you're seeing in a lot of cases in Acts. The other one, the other, and let's quickly go to Acts chapter six, because this is their best argument, the best example. Um, there's eight. It's eight. Okay, it's eight. Yeah, yeah. Philip goes down to Samaria. Now, who are the Samaritans? Half-Jews. They have a bastardized version of Judaism where they accept the books of Moses, but they've added in other cultic things. They don't, they don't believe in writings after Moses. They've got an alternate place of worship. And the Jews had nothing but contempt and scorn for them. They're the ones who weren't faithful. They didn't toe the line. They intermarried with the pagan nations, and look where they ended up. And so Philip goes down there and he preaches the gospel to them. People believe. And we'll pick it up in um, verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus So admittedly, we've got people who believed, who received the word, who have believed in Jesus, who've been baptized into the name of Jesus, who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so here is prima facie, absolutely a delay. These people got justified, and at some point after their salvation, they're going to have the apostles lay hands on them and receive the Holy Spirit. The question is, is what happens here normative? Is it programmatic for the church? I don't think it is. Um so you gotta ask the question, and, and the reason I don't think it is, I've already shown you in the last couple of weeks from First Corinthians twelve that Paul assumes anyone who's a believer is baptized by one spirit. We're all baptized into one body, and male or female, um slave or free, and made to drink from one spiritual drink. Um Paul in first in Romans sorry in Romans 6 as many of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. If you're not baptized by Christ and his spirit, you're not in Christ. You're not part of his body. And if you're not in Christ and if you're not part of his body, you are lost. Um that's the assumption by the time Paul's writing his his writing. So what do, what do we do with this? Go back to Acts chapter 1. It's notable that the only time tongues show up in the book of Acts Are Acts two, Pentecost. Um, It's implied Cornelius, um, the Samaritans, and the disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus, speaking to them, um, in Acts chapter one, says to them in verse eight, "You will receive power, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria." the ends of the earth and in each step as the gospel moves one step further out it appears as though god two things happen the holy spirit in very visible marked ways makes it clear these next group out have received the spirit and god makes sure apostles are present to witness it those are the two things that happen so who does god send to cornelius Peter. And then we're told in the next and, we, and that account of Peter and Cornelius occurs twice in Acts, back to back, because we read about it in Acts ten, and then we read Peter tell about it in Acts eleven. In other words, Luke is wanting to show us not only did this happened, it was corroborated, it was reported back. That, what, Luke is emphasizing the, the record keeping. This is a big deal. And the church had to wrap its head around it. Um, in fact the earliest the earliest church Synod or council is over what to do with the Gentiles and the law and it's Acts 15 and are they allowed to eat things strangled or do they get circumcised? What do we do with them? They have this big meeting with Peter and Paul and James in Jerusalem. And so when the gospel goes out to this next level, God sends an apostle and the spirit in a very clear... So that's... Go, yeah, go to Acts 11. I want you to get the point. Signs signify things. Signs attest to things. That's the point. And... So the point of these miraculous gifts, at least in the case of Cornelius, is to enable Peter to argue as he does in Acts 11. So in Acts 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. What happened to us is what happened to them. And I remember the words of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So God sends an apostolic witness, and there's a very clear evidence saying that's identical to them. And then the same thing happens in Samaria. Because an apostle didn't go down there and preach, I would suggest the reason the delay for the Holy Spirit is until the apostles show up to witness it. That, that to me makes the absolute most sense. Admittedly, Luke doesn't tell us why the Holy Spirit delayed. And in fact, when he tells us the Holy Spirit did delay, it does seem like he's reporting something unusual. Like, this isn't what you'd expect. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on them. And then they send, what do they do? They send apostles there. And then... Holy Spirit comes upon them, um, but in every other instance, we should assume I would assume the Holy Spirit's coming upon them just like just like when Paul preached in Acts two he tells the thousands of people present, repent, believe, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, no delay, no second experience, it's boom, right with me yes, so does that make sense? so what we've got to make it clear what we've got is writings in the epistles from Paul that assume every believer has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's the logic of 1 Corinthians 12 and of Romans 6 and other passages. So when Paul's writing, he's assuming you're a Christian, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. If you're not baptized in, with, by the Holy Spirit, you are not part of the body, you are not in Christ. That's the logic of Paul. So then we go to Acts. I, 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 then you go to Acts, where you got this transition period, and we do have to make sense... what's going on with some of these things and admittedly acts is descriptive not prescriptive it's a book of history it tells us what happened it doesn't tell us what to do directly Um, and what you'll find is with those in the charismatic camp they're going to argue almost exclusively from acts and have to downplay the epistles whereas I think it makes far more sense to let the epistles which are to tell us what is and how we should act be the guideline and let let the, the, uh, the prescriptive text, where things are prescribed and truth is declared and just laid out, the clear trump the unclear, as opposed to taking acts and say, well, it happened there, and we've got to repeat, that's got to happen to us. Um, that, that's, okay, that makes sense. Yes, Lee, question now. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me say let me say, let me say this, and I'll, I'll bleed ahead to where we're going ahead. I don't think that I'm not arguing that only in those significant next step out occurrences, only there, the Holy Spirit show up with signs and wonders and miracles. It seems, certainly seems to be normative for the early church that. In every church, there was a smattering of people who could work miracles, people could speak in other languages, people who could interpret, and, that, and those gifts can be given at baptism. Now, I don't think it's normative that every person received the Holy Spirit spoken tongues. Luke is, is clearly identifying to give credibility and credence to the gospel taking the next step out, the gospel taking the next step out. He's, he's highlighting to Theophilus how what Jesus said in chapter one gets fulfilled in very clear and remarkable ways. There's a second issue, which is, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, that we believe that, um, the Bible predicted that the, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit would, would alter and peter out or, or come to an end. And we believe that that has happened. Um, that's a second issue. So, it, it certainly appears to be normative that in the first century, and even if you read, like, the Apostolic Fathers by the, by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, they're already disappearing in the record and the witness of the Apostolic Fathers and the, the earliest church documents. Um, so there's two things going on. One, yes, across the boards, there, there were, and Paul, when Paul's writing, he's assuming there are people in your congregation who, who work miracles and stuff. He does not assume everyone has the gift of tongues. And that's really clear when you read First Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, because there's groups saying that. And Paul says, Do all speak in tongues? Do all work miracles? Do all, you know, heal? And the obvious answer is no. Right? Which is why which is why the assemblies of God recognize that and say, okay, not everybody has the permanent gift of tongues, but everyone will speak in tongues as an evidence of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. So to, to put up the two views, they're arguing. Every believer can, should be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and when they are, they will speak in tongues. And I'll quote them on that, so it's not me saying it. The initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, cardinal doctrine number eight. The baptism of Christians in the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the initial physical physical sign of speaking in other tongues, unlearned languages, as the Spirit gives them audible expression. This form of speaking in tongues is basically the same... um, as the gift of tongues. The difference is purpose and use. So it's, it's basically the same, but some people have that gift permanently, and some will just have it initially. That's, that's what they believe, okay? And any questions on any of that with five? Yes, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We will get to that in future weeks. we're, go, no, we're going there. So, no, so, there's two issues. One, very dramatically, very clearly, in a big overflow of signs that drew attention, we get in Acts three or four accounts that are really like, whoa, you get it in Acts two. I don't think that was ever normative. I, I think those are those are singled out as marking points. The Holy Spirit comes, boom. The Holy Spirit goes to the gospel goes to the half Jews, the Samaritans, and that's a big event. And the Gentiles, big event, you know. Um I, I don't think that was nor I don't think we don't get any record that when Peter preaches to three thousand people that boom, you know, that happened. Um so I don't think I do think that those people who were baptized and believed received the Holy Spirit and many of them received gifts of working miracles and speaking other languages and prophesying and all those things. I don't think it was a big like explosive overflow the moment they got saved. I think that's unique just for Acts. Now in Paul's writing, we do have the situation where the assumption is the church has every church has a a, a number of all of these gifts. That's the other thing that's changed. And and you just look through church history, that that's undeniable. Um, let me make one point and um because we have with time um, the simple fact that we're debating this 50 years after they supposedly returned is probably the single strongest argument that they have let me let me let me say that again this only in like the last 50 60 70 years has there been any what? See, I'm, I'm, I'm not even crediting them. I'm thinking of the ones that happened in the 70s, 60s, and 70s is where I'm looking. Fine. Last 100 years. Last 150 years. Supposedly, some Christian groups got together and the Holy Spirit came upon them and began speaking of the languages and miracles happened and things like that. But you read through church history prior to, I'll, let's, let's be generous, prior to the 20th century, you got nothing back to the 2nd century. You've got 1,800 years of no one making any credible claim. Um, and and so you got to deal with that. Whatever, I mean, In other words, I, I think we need to be honest and say, okay, whatever's going on, things are different now than they were then. That just seems obvious. Whatever's going on, things have changed. Um, but, but my point is simply the simple fact that we're arguing and debating about this 50, 100 years after they're supposedly returned is the single greatest argument they're not. Because let's let's just face it if somebody showed up no 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 be, let's just face it It'd be this simple if somebody showed up here could preach an orthodox gospel and somebody had a missing finger and they prayed and the finger got returned they win right because we know that no one speaking by uh, a demon can can say jesus is the christ and so if you can articulate the gospel clearly and do supernatural feats i know what spirit is empowering you you win game set match right all you would need is one or two credible accounts like that where somebody works a clear undeniable miracle somebody missing a hand somebody's missing a foot you know they have a foot now you know the withered hand is healed okay you win and there's been 50 or 100 years to do that and it hasn't happened we're still arguing and debating it what and back pain and yeah 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 was there a hand i saw yeah, no, not you You didn't have it. That's not a hand. Yes. Well, no. What we'll, we'll, we'll do is we're going to next thing we're going to deal with after the baptism of the Holy Spirit is tongues, and then we'll look at tongues itself. Um, I would submit to you one final thing, and we'll look at pick this up next week. Every time the New Testament, especially Paul, every time the New Testament and Paul. Um, teaches about the evidence is the Holy Spirit. It's not tongues, but the fruit of the Spirit that we're looking for. To me, that's the biggest danger of this is what we're getting at is, am I Spirit filled? Have I spoken in tongues? Rather, it should be like, am I Spirit filled? Am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving other Christians? Let this, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God from your heart. That's the evidence. That's the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Right. So, Anyway, that's, that's where we're going. We'll pick this up next week um, and go from there. Yes. Mm. Right. Right. Oh we've got some x x x folks who can testify to this tremendous pressure and guilt and uh yeah you, you you're you're what's wrong with you? come on get with the program I've had people i've I know of people who they started like start repeating after me that they'll give them gibberish to say they try to jump start it. I'm not even making this up, am I right you're with me you know I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. just sort of repeat that. No, that's not even a joke. This is not even a joke. You gotta kind of get the thing jump started. So I've 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 heard of that. Um, but, we'll, but we'll deal with we'll deal with that next week. And okay, what, what is the gift of tongues? Um, God bless. Have a good day, and uh, we'll see you all next week.